Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Well, here we are. I don't, I don't know why I just said that, actually. But anyway, here we are. It's the end of the week. Maybe, unless you're listening to the podcast at some other time. Uh, and it's time for the NOS, a weekly cultural roundtable. Today on the show, we will a little bit later be talking about athletes and their bodies and vaccines. I think that pretty well describes it. And an article by Anne Helen Peterson, of whom I am a big fan. I didn't really particularly understand this article, but the other panelists do. It's about something called revenge sleep procrastination. So if you're not sleeping quite right these days, it could be, well, it definitely is, you know, tied to something much, much deeper. But we're going to begin with Cry Macho, the umpteen billionth Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, and um, it's been a pretty interesting career. He's now in his early 90s. He's not stopping. Uh, he produced, directed, and starred in Cry Macho, a project which has been kind of lurking around the edges of filmmaking for a really long time. In fact, if you want to go back far enough, um, it was initially a screenplay idea by a pretty well-known writer at the time named N. Richard Nash. And he couldn't get anywhere the screen with the screenplay. And he thought, you know, I could novelize this thing in about two weeks. And so he did. He wrote a novel. The novel was successful. And then there were all kinds of plans to make it with Roy Scheider, Burt Lancaster, Pierce Brosnan, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And at one other point, Clint Eastwood, quite a while ago. But finally, now it has been made. It has in it, I think, maybe the greatest performance by a chicken that I have ever seen in a movie, uh, and there may be quite a bit more to say about it uh, than that. And joining us now is Tracy Wu, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Development Officer at Connecticut Children's, and my phone is ringing for unknown reasons. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University, uh, and we're off and running here. Maybe before I get them talking about it, though, uh, we'll play a, a little bit uh, of the movie. You're going to the plot of the movie basically is this kind of rundown, broken down, and because he's a Clint Eastwood character sometime in the last 20 years, cantankerous, kind of old ranch hand and other things. Uh, a guy named Mike uh, has been sent by a rich rancher, played by Dwight Yoakam, to get his son. Uh, his son is in the care of the son's mother, uh, who is a Mexican national living in, Ma in Mexico. Uh, and it is uh, Mike's job to somehow or other where, as it turns out, two other people have failed to bring this young boy, Rafa, back. So let's hear the two principal characters. Can I wear your hat? No. Why not? Because it's a cowboy hat. And you're not a cowboy. Anything a gringo cowboy can do with horses. A Mexicano can do better. As chingon. Uh, well, you're in bad shape, then, because you're half gringo. What do you think, kid? You think I'm a gringo? Yeah. Do you think I'm like my father? A coward? Run away? Well... Do you think I'm like my mom? Weak? I don't know. I don't know your mom. 
It's your father. Then? Who am I, Mike? Here, kid. I don't want to word your dumb, stupid head. All right. You hear the chicken also. I don't know what that line was. But uh, so uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, maybe get us going. I mean, we need, there's a lot of things we need to talk about and unpack here. Uh, ultimately, I know all of us would like to chime in on Eastwood's continued insistence on himself as a sex symbol. But before we get to that, I don't know. How, how did the movie work for you or did it work for you? There, There's an awful lot to unpack here. Um, I would say that the movie overall is not something I would have chosen to watch other than for this discussion. Um, the first thing that I was struck with was how the father's acting was just not that great. I just, the, like that sort of turned me off to the movie at the beginning. I'm like, oh, if we're in for a lot of this, I'm not sure how well I'm going to do. Wait a minute. Um, Are you saying that progress- Dwight, you're saying that Dwight Oakum, Yoakum is not a great actor? It just, some of it, the delivery of his lines was a little rough. All right. Um, And so, you know, as the movie progressed, the storyline, all right, fine. I really thought that the kid was wonderful. Um, Raphael, Rafo, the chicken obviously was fantastic too. Um, But I felt like the storyline, while entertaining to some extent, was a little trite, honestly. Um, And then there is the whole layer poor uh jonathan mcnichol got an email from me probably about you know half an hour into the movie where i'm like listen nobody warned me that clint eastwood was going to have to be portrayed as desirable romantic or whatever and um at which point i was reminded of several other instances where in his later years he has been portrayed as such but i'm feeling like that's got to top out at some point right we well i mean he's in his early 90s so i mean what are we waiting for i mean or <laughs> like a, you know I, I think it's i think that kind of proves it's not going to top uh, eventually you know there'll be i don't know i mean necrophilia who knows uh but it just it just never never stops how about you bill <laughs> I, I feel like this movie kind of moved you a little bit well it moved me to want to turn it off. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I mean, for you, you all keep talking about the chicken. I want to remind you that the kid, as um, Mike calls him, uh, keeps insisting it's not a chicken. It's a very macho rooster, and uh, the rooster was kind of the best part of it. Um, so, so I'm trying to be like really fair, and I have to admit straight away. I'm not really a Clint Eastwood fan, um, but I do have to give him credit for his work ethic, his long, sustained, prolific output. It's not quite an umpteen billion, but it's, you know, I think close to about 40 movies uh, that he's directed. And honestly, if I can be doing as much as he's doing at 91, I would consider that a victory and be pretty proud of that. He's got some films that I think are deservedly really highly regarded. Uh, The Unforgiven, of course, Letters from Iwo Jima. My personal favorite is uh, the film Mystic River, uh, which is um, one of the few Clint Eastwood movies that I really do like quite a bit. The source material for that, the the, the novel was so great. Um, I don't think this movie is going to make it into the ranks of, you know, the really good Clint Eastwood movies. 
Uh, because I think there's just a lot wrong with it as I saw it. Right. So, uh, I, I, I think there's sort of no question that, you know, if you like movies, you could probably find something in that massive Clint Eastwood of, and certainly Mystic River is a great example. I think Unforgiven uh, obviously is one of the other ones that kind of stands out. There's some smaller movies like Grand Torino, which I, I thought was kind of a terrific movie. The, there's somebody at Vulture who's trying to rank most of the Eastwood movies and mm-hmm. she adapted her list and put Cry Macho in at number 15, which is actually not too bad a, a position. Um, I was shocked by that honestly i saw that (laughs) and i was like hmm about midway i'm not so sure i would go that high well i mean let me just first of all i i i agree i think in particular with what you said tracy with faustenberg that there's a way in which this movie because there's almost a little something quaint and corny about it, that it doesn't really succeed, I think, in creating the stakes, you know, that we would need to be maybe kind of riveted by the adventure part of this movie. This is uh, a movie about two people who don't necessarily trust one another, uh, a very old man and a very uh, interesting boy. I think he's still kind of a boy at this point, uh, who's been living with his depraved mother, (laughs) whose depravity is never really quite spell it out and she's not in the movie very much anyway but um, but he's uh, eager to escape her depravity and has been trying to do that on his own uh, his father has given him an opportunity to come home although that seems like a, a pretty complex bargain that's being struck there um, but you know because in fact I think of the kind of there's a slight cornball quality to this that I think creates a problem in the sense that you just uh, it doesn't seem like anything particularly bad is going to happen to anybody. Um, and, and and even if it does, it probably won't happen to anybody that you care about very much, uh, which means the chicken's going to make it right to the end of the movie. But uh, so I don't know. I don't exactly know how else we begin to talk about this other than to say, Tracy Wu Fasterberg, as we are looking around for movies that maybe we could watch with our kids. I mean, I don't know kids I have my son's 31 but he's 32 today happy birthday uh, the son happy birthday. Uh, but happy um, birthday. but you know I mean this is sort of a movie that the family could kind of watch right I mean maybe not really really super young kids but and, and it's got a few nice little life lessons in it I don't know is, is, is could we give it sort of an okay on that basis or do you still have a problem with it I mean I guess content wise you know you, you could watch it with your family although I feel like I could think of about a hundred movies I would watch with my family before that, even as my kids get older. Um, I mean, really, it is the chicken that we shouldn't call a chicken that kind of <laughs> steals <laughs> he the calls, show. He I calls mean, it a chicken all the way through. Yeah, I mean, Macho is the hero. You know, Macho saves them in their most perilous moment. Mm-hmm. So um, not to give anything else more away, but I think beyond that, I, I just, I can't, I can think of other feel good, you know, rough and tumble guy, soft other character movies that I would put af- ahead of this um, where, I mean, and, and some of them could even be Disney mo- movies and I'm not even a huge fan of Disney that I would put before this. That's how much I, I sort of just feel like this just fell flat for me. Yeah. And I wonder if part of the problem is um 
Bill, that the, although the movie contains some life lessons and the little dial, this kind of Socratic dialogues that are going on between uh, Mike and, and Rafa are, you know, they have some content to them. Maybe the message also isn't quite potent enough. I mean, it's kind of summed up in a scene where where Rafa kind of confronts uh, Mike about his own manhood and says, you know, you used to be macho, but you're not macho anymore. And, and he says, kid, this macho is not all it's cracked up to be. And, and kind of spells out why that would be the case. Um, and, you know, it's not that that doesn't have any poignance or philosophical weight to it. I just feel like I've kind of, it's like a lesson too late for the learning, as the song goes. I mean, it's sort of too late because we've already heard it before. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you, you made a comment in our, in our emails, uh, Colin, about um, Eastwood sort of kind of like trying to work against himself or reflect on himself a little bit. I mean, you would never have heard Dirty Harry, you know, criticize, you know, the idea of being macho as not being all it's cut out to be. You know, Dirty Harry, the poster boy for defund the police, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 Eastwood does seem to be trying to do that, especially as he gets older. Um, you mentioned Gran Torino, uh, even The Unforgiven, um, in 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 some ways was 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 trying to do that. It's I, I don't know. I, I think there's some problems with execution in in this film i i felt like there was a lot of awkward exposition where they try to give like his whole backstory by telling him about it in in the opening moments a lot of clunky dialogue some kind of wooden performances so i think all of that works against whatever larger thing the film might be trying to do Mm. It is kind of nicely shot, we should say. I mean, oh uh, yeah, yeah. I was when I was looking for good things to say about it. Like what? Really, really pretty scenery, lots of cute animals and kids. Right, and and some camera. First of all, yes. I mean, this the scenery of Mexico is. Uh, in, in some of its stark beauty, um, exploited pretty well. And actually, you know, I mean, the way cameras move around in this movie actually is a little bit interesting at times. All right, so let's get to uh, this other thing that we have to talk about, which is that, uh, and Tracy, yes, you're the one who introduced it kind of, you know, uh, in your first half hour. Um, so there's a way in which Clint Eastwood always kind of insists, and, and for a long time has insisted kind of implausibly, uh, that he is a romantic lead, uh, that he is uh, going to be very sexually desirable. And I don't want to be, I mean, I feel, I feel like ageism is rampant in this country right now, so I don't want to sound ageist. It's just that this the actor who plays the woman, Marta, the woman who's attracted to him in this movie, a Mexican woman, is 40 years younger than he is in real life. <laughs> and she looks about 40 years younger than than he does. And And you just sort of wonder... Tracy, what bell is being rung here exactly? And are we supposed to enjoy the way it's ringing? I mean, and not even to mention Marta, but also Rafa's mother at one point sort of offers mm-hmm. herself to him. And that was probably where my first email fired off because it just sort of seemed in, in that situation, she didn't really have anything to gain from it. So it wasn't, it didn't seem like she was sort of trying to, use her sexuality as a a tool. Um, It was just sort of 
there. Um, and, and so I felt like the reason it was there was to portray Eastwood as a still desirable, virulent person. And again, I, I agree with you, ageism is rampant. And I do want to, I do hope that people of all ages enjoy and explore their sexuality. Um, but I just think in a cinematic way here, just the difference of age and just the situation where it really wasn't it wasn't needed to advance the storyline so much. It was almost like stroking Clint Eastwood's ego in a way. Well, and had I, this movie been made, you know, yeah. what when it was originally proposed, you know, decades ago, that would have probably worked much better. Here, it just didn't quite click. It wasn't believable, I guess. Yeah, although, I mean, just, uh, first of all, I, I completely agree with the sentiment of the conversation we're having. Although, I just in terms of the specifics of this movie, I think it could be argued that that scene towards the beginning of the movie is this, you know, super attractive, but completely depraved and crazy and, and probably kind of evil uh, woman offering herself to him sexually. And and maybe it's an opportunity for the character of Mike to say, to say no, I'm, I'm not doing that because, there, because, because I do have some principles and there's something really wrong with you. Uh, you know, whereas his courtship with Marta, this, uh, this little cafe owner who, um, who kind of is the beating heart of the movie in so many different ways, is rather courtly, right? It isn't really, you know, I mean, we don't really see a whole lot of fooling around or or anything like that. There's a way in which it is a very old-fashioned kind of romance-based. I mean, it turns out Mike can do any, he can fix anything, including a pig and a jukebox. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can fix anything. So he fixes the jukebox mm-hmm. so they can dance. So I, I don't know, Bill. I mean, there's a way in which this... You know the the romance. I think we were all kind of going, "Oh no, you've got to be kidding me!" But it, <laughs> but it's not it's not like a, a, a roll around in the sheets. It's something else. Yeah, that part that romance didn't bother me as much as as the earlier scene that you all were talking about. Where there's another problem with that earlier scene too, I think, which is that the mother really is like the stereotype of the Latina seductress Mm -hmm. with a fiery temper when she's rejected. I mean, that was straight from, you know, old time central Mm -hmm. casting. Um, And, you know, again, not to be ageist, although if there's anyone, you know, the people in this group who are allowed to be ageist are me and Colin uh, as cantankerous old ranch hands in our own right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I'm as good as, Eastwood is, if I make it to 91, I will be very thankful for that. But, you know, regarding these other things that you just mentioned, he's kind of like a saintly character now. He can barely walk, but he can ride a bucking Bronco. Mm. And he's good with kids. And he knows sign language. And And he can heal animals. (laughs) And he can cook. And he's a horse whisperer. You know, he's just kind of like a Superman. And I think that does maybe speak to this idea of Clint Eastwood stroking his own ego. Right. And I think also this is the way in which Mike, the character in Cry Macho, differs from, I think, Walt or Walter, the character in Gran Torino, who was kind of a horrible old cantankerous man and a a racist and and not some kind of Mm -hmm. paragon. Mike is, in in all the ways that you just laid out, uh, kind of a paragon, uh, even though he's... he can be abrupt and curt and all those Clint Eastwoody things. Uh, but but it's, you know, you could argue that the Grand Torino character is a lot more interesting just because he's so d- 
deeply flawed from the very beginning. It's kind of amazing he can he can redeem himself at all. But so Tracy, I, I have to say that I have more than usual a lot of women in in my house these days, um, and and so when this is coming up, they all said the same thing. And I was sort of talking to them about the fact that even if you go back, you know, twenty five years to Bridges of Madison County, I mean, there's that scene where I think he's working with his shirt off, you know, and Meryl Streep's character is staring at him, and he's obviously such an incredible scrumptious hunk of man flesh <laughs> that she's probably going to have to throw a caution to the wind and you know screw up her whole life because she's got to have this guy and he's 65 years old which is I'm 67 pretty soon but he's got all this kind of crunchy stuff sticking out of his skin and everything he's just not he's not like this like I gotta have this you know and and I've sort of struggled with this all the way along where line of the fire in the line of fire Renee Russo really Renee Russo is gonna so I sort of feel Tracy that it's it's not exactly exactly age and it's sort of I don't know there's something else (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this, I mean, I don't know. I guess he gets really attractive women in real life, too. So I, I don't even know what I'm talking about probably, at this point. Save probably me. that's connected to all kinds of, you know, fame and fortune and, and, you know, icon and all that. But, yeah, I think even even in Bridges of Madison County, it's been a long time since I watched it. Um, I remember kind of sitting there going, mm, that's not that attractive. Yet I am somebody who tends to and always has found older men attractive you know uh, Teresa Kramer and I have had many conversations about <laughs> silver foxes over the years so it's not a, an even a personal preference for you know younger men men my own age whatever but it I think it has to do with that little bit of like what you're saying you know even even there he was a little rough around the edges physically to be believably attractive to Meryl Streep in that situation so it might be all of that wrapped into one and let's be fair, like he's not alone in Hollywood as far as that kind of thing goes. Um, and, and it's not necessarily always even an age thing. If you look at, you know, Woody Allen bracketing all the other stuff uh, in his films. Uh, and how often are you saying like, really, like you would believe this as a couple? So that seems to be a pretty common standard trope in Hollywood anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's the Kevin can f himself uh, phenomenon yeah, to a certain right. degree. Uh, I mean, it's a particular kind of sitcom trope. But yes, also, I mean, I don't know. Jack Nicholson makes no attempt to take care of himself. Right? I mean, at least Clint Eastwood, he's kind of a health nut and he doesn't smoke and he's like really, you know, he stayed in in, in pretty nice shape uh, all all through his eighties and early nineties. But yes, I mean, it's anyway. What the women in my house say about all this is. It's a man's world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And How I'm, often do you see a less than conventionally attractive or an older woman, you know, paired with an incredibly conventionally attractive younger man? You know, it's just not the same sort of or, you know, the quirky woman paired with like the the really hot guy. You know, it's just not something you see as often as you see the reverse. And oh yeah, and, yeah, and I'm going to agree with the women in your house. Yeah, and I, and I think when the, when that does happen, it's the focus of a lot of conversation within the movie too, or or, or whatever yes. piece of culture. Whereas it's just not even spoken of <laughs> these uh, these other situations. I mean, what's weird is that in real life, I don't I don't think real life works that way. You know, I mean, first of all, in real life, I think there are not many men who wouldn't throw away a lot for 
uh, you know, a few wonderful soft moments with Helen Mirren, you know, and and like you know, men men of any age sort of look at her and go, wow, she's just incredible. Um, I I think you know, in, in a way, the movies because they've got to make this bankable, uh, they've got to you know do something that they really feel like they can sell and market, and they understand well enough to do that. It's kind of in a way we use movies to dream, except we're not allowed to dream that dream. Uh, yeah, and and that that dream is huge closer to reality. Yeah, Bill, what were you going to say? Uh, just as a side note, Ted Lasso is kind of doing something interesting with that right now, uh, with an older woman and a younger man, and they're getting some criticism for it too, as well about the power differentials between those characters. Yeah, that is, that's interesting. That's an interesting tie-in. All right. Well, we have to stop there because we have to talk about several other things as we go along here. The movie is Cry Macho. This is not clearly a ringing endorsement, although I would say, you know, I mean, if, as long as you don't set your expectations too high, it's something maybe the whole family can watch. And um, I mean, there isn't even really a bad cockfighting scene. Not really, anyway. So good luck with that. But I meant no wrong And when the sun sets on the hillside, the nights can be so long. Now the rooms are all empty, and my pillow's gone cold to the bone. I guess it's really. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Uh, we are back. Our panelists today are Tracy Wu Fastenberg and Bill Usman. I'm going to need their help for this next segment because I, I like kind of don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's a piece by Anne Ann Helen Peterson, who I really like, and I believe she's been on this show at least once uh, and has a wonderful newsletter. Uh, but this is about a phenomenon that I didn't quite understand, or at least I don't know how to differentiate it from normal kind of abusive sleep patterns. Uh, but she talks about, she sort of sketches out, you know, your typical harassed uh, modern professional uh, with their intention drawn in 20 different directions over the course of a day, uh, obligations and meetings and running late for pickup and realizing you didn't put the load of laundry in the wash and now it's getting late and you're answering emails while stirring something on the stove and more emails and half listening to your kids and you put the kids to bed and you let the dog outside, you turn out the lights, you're ready for a much needed good night's sleep, 
and then you can't put yourself to sleep. You wind up binging a mediocre show. You can't stop scrolling Instagram or Twitter or a dating app. You're reading some overly detailed breakdown of a sporting event. You're watching a long Clint Eastwood movie with a chicken in it. Uh, you're doing things that – so. Um, and she calls this revenge sleep procrastination. I don't know. Tracy Wu Fasterberg, help me out with this. How is – I found myself struggling to put what she was describing into the container she was describing putting it in. So I think, you know, the title of it is a little janky because she's trying to translate something that originated in, in China and, you know, there's no direct translation. Mm-hmm. But I um, I definitely related to it as soon as I started reading. Even the title was sort of like, yep, pretty sure I do that, but we're going to have to look and see, you know, <laughs> what the details of it are. And I think it's, you know, we're torn in so many different directions um, with so much of what we have to do. I think the pandemic has sort of exacerbated, you know, people working from home and being connected more to their work email and their work and, you know, having to stagger stuff throughout the day anyway with just a change in schedule that the boundaries have sort of blurred a lot more than they had previously. And so you find yourself trying to catch up on work-related things or things for the folks you care for, whether it's kids, parents, whoever. Um, And then finally, when you get to the moment where you're like, okay, I can go to sleep, you realize I haven't done anything that I really wanted to do yet today, but you're so exhausted that you can't get to that. But you also don't want to go to sleep because it feels like you're not accomplishing what you want to, you know, that whole self-care thing while you're sleeping. So then you doom yourself to doom scrolling or watching something terrible or whatever it is, as opposed to that more constructive thing that you had hoped to do throughout the day. But you certainly don't want to go to sleep because that would be admitting defeat. Um, and then, you know, rinse, repeat, you get up a little more tired and you do it all again the next day. And that's, that's sort of how I read it as sort of trying to take control in some way, but just not having the amount of energy or, motivation to actually do what you had originally hoped to do. And so, Tracy, what's the sort of revenge or retaliatory aspect of that? Because that's somewhere in the, the the Chinese expression that this is based on. I mean, I think, you know, Bill said it well, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face. It's kind of, you know, you're trying to do something, but and, and just so you can take that control. But in the end, you're kind of screwing yourself over. Um, and maybe it's sort of like, well, I'm going to I'm going to do this because I'm going to show, you know, my employer, my other obligations or whatever, that they don't have full control of me. I still have control of my life. But in a way, you kind of don't because you're reading some terrible recap of like The Bachelor or something. <laughs> OK, I totally get it now. If it had been explained, <laughs> if it explained, been explained that well in the piece, uh, I would be much more on the <laughs> game here. So, uh, Bill, what's your relationship to this? Uh, I could really relate to the piece. And I think you're right. Like the hang up is that word revenge. Because then the question is, who are you taking revenge on by staying up later and depriving yourself of sleep? You're really kind of like taking revenge on yourself, but then what are you taking revenge on yourself for? Oh boy, I'm really in the weeds now. Um, Jonathan McNichol pointed out in our emails that yes, but you're less productive the next day, you know, if you're stumbling in, you know, with four hours of sleep or, or whatever, it might be. So in some ways it is kind of, you know, that, that type of, 
um, you know, insurrection at, 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 at work, uh, shouldn't use that word these days. Um, it, it points out in the piece, and this is, this was a, um, eye opening, no pun intended, com, uh, statement for me, the average Chinese employee only had 2.42 hours per day when they're not at work or asleep. Wow. Wow, 2.42 hours a day that you could kind of consider me time. Mm -hmm. And 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 she points out that's okay, that's a that's a Chinese statistic, but that kind of thing is happening all over the world uh under the conditions of capitalism that we're living in. Like like let let's not have any illusions that Chinese is not a capitalist state. It's a it's a totalitarian capitalist state at this point. Um, and so people are giving more and more and more of themselves to their employer. And this is just kind of a way to to take that back a little bit. I can relate to not having as many hours in the day to do what I want to do, even though I'm lucky and very, very lucky to be in a job where the things that I love are also related to the things that I get paid for. And most people are not lucky enough to be in that position. Yeah, I, I sort of feel a little bit the same way that um – uh, it is sort of true that my work never stops. I mean, it's not just this radio show. It's a newspaper column. It's a newsletter. Uh, at times it's teaching as well. And it does feel as though nothing ever shuts down. Although for me, um, when it's time to go to bed, I really want to go to bed more than I want to do any of these other things that are <laughs> described in this article. I'm, and I'm not saying that I've never done any of them. I don't, I haven't, I'm not saying I haven't stayed up in a, you know, for reasons that made me feel kind of soiled and stupid, uh, you know, at the end of it. I totally get that phenomenon. And I think it's even worse when you live alone because there's nobody really watching you and saying, it's really it's time to go to bed now. Stop that. Um, but um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I'll do an early endorsement, all right, uh, and say if you're doing anything like this, make a slightly better plan. Um, and what you have to do is you have to wait until marijuana is completely legal in the state of Connecticut because I wouldn't want you to like <laughs> drive to Massachusetts or something, you know, because that would be so wrong, so wrong. Uh, but wait until it's legal and then get a gummy. Um, and and put on uh, some music by Aruj Aftab, who's this amazing Pakistani uh, fe female vocalist and composer. Um, mm. And you'll be asleep pretty quickly. <laughs> mm. uh, and, uh, and you'll have as much fun being asleep uh, as you would staying up doom scrolling or whatever the hell it is that, that people are doing in, in this phenomenon. So uh, it's like, you know, you have to sort of decide, I want sleep as bad as I want anything. I don't know, Tracy, does that seem uh, like something maybe that help might help you play out of the rough that, that you're describing you're in sometimes? I mean, theoretically, I do want sleep as badly as I want anything else. You know, I come up to bed every night with the intention of maybe going to bed early or whatever. And for some reason, it's just like, I just, it's like, oh, let me unwind before I go to sleep because, you know, my mind is racing with, you know, do the kids have this or what things do I have to do for work or crap the, you know, the laundry's still in the washer type of thing. Um, and it just, you just wind up getting sucked into whatever it is that you might be doing. And it is partly like, this is my time for myself. Um, and you know what? I have a spouse who sits there and goes, what are you doing? Go to sleep. <laughs> and then he does the exact same thing. Uh, okay. So, 
I feel like I feel like maybe I need to write down your step by step and take that to right. heart, and maybe that will be my key to finding the piece. Yeah. Uh, no, what you just described is called codependency. Uh, you're, you're mutually enabling one another. All right, we have. To, oh yeah, Laurie and I can relate to that yeah. for sure. So uh, we have to sort of jump over to uh, under. I, there have been parts of my recent existence where I could relate to that as well. Uh, it's possible that I live with somebody who could lure me into, you know, staying up and watching, you know, five episodes in a row. Or something. <laughs> but um, all right, so uh, very quickly, or not very quickly, but we have to sort of make a transition here if we're going to get to it. Uh, and, and it is, uh, the subject is uh, about, um, uh, about well, specifically about, is, first of all, an article by the great Dave Zirin. He's been on this show many times. Uh, and it's an article about NBA players in particular who won't get vaccinated. Uh, and although they're, they're a smaller group than in other professional sports, but still kind of constitute a very specific kind of problem, but also about uh, athletes unions who seem more interested in defending the right of ath- rights of athletes to go unvaccinated than defending the rights of vaccinated athletes not to have these other people breathing in their faces, which is actually what happens in basketball quite a bit. So I, I don't know, Bill, uh, w- w- tell us what we're going to do with this particular article and this particular idea. Uh, we're going to get outraged or at least you know, that's that's what I'm going to do with it. I, I know Dave Zirin a little bit as well. I've brought him uh, to our campus a few times to talk because he is like such a great writer writing on the intersections of sports and politics and culture. And what he's really taking on here is what is actually, as you point out, Colin, a, a pretty small phenomenon. Like, I think we should start by acknowledging that as of today, the NBA currently has a 95% vaccination rate. And uh, as might be expected, the WNBA is doing even better with a 99% vaccination rate. Um, If the whole country was doing as well as the NBA does, uh, I said to you all, maybe we'd be doing this show in person instead of remotely. Our lives would be much more open than they currently are. and but as these things tend to go, right, it's it's that small group. And unfortunately, some of them include what are considered superstar players that are sucking up all the oxygen and getting all the attention. But, you know, really contributing to this environment of disinformation that is out there and really doing a disservice to uh their communities, to their, their, their fellow athletes, you know, even the people who, who go into the stadiums. And so it's, it's vexing. And, uh, you know, like I say, like my, my reaction is, is just grief and, and outrage about it. Right. So, I mean, part of the kind of countervailing argument, if there is one, Tracy, is that kind of notion that the history of professional athletics is often uh, wealthy ownership uh, using the bodies uh, of athletes to generate revenue uh, and trying to control as much about those bodies as they possibly can. And that there are some athletes who just rebel against it on that basis, saying, well, you are simply not going to tell me I have to get this shot right now, uh, either because I I don't trust it uh, or because I just don't feel like having you control this aspect of me, you control enough of me as it is. I don't, what do you make of that? I mean, I think there there's that layer to it. There's also the layer that, um, you know, historically, a lot of science and medicine has been, uh, research has been imposed on Black bodies. You know, there is mm-hmm. this, this historical distrust, rightfully so, 
Um, but I also think that, you know, we're, we're almost a year into these vaccines being administered and there are, there are a lot of data out there already, you know, for folks that are sitting there going, I'm going to do my own research or, um, you know, whatever other reasons that they give. And these folks are in a profession where what they do affects so many other people. Um, I think one of the things that struck me in the article too, is that, you know, if it is a rebellion against, you know, the um, wealthier powers or, or whatever, they're getting praise from Ted Cruz for what they're doing. They're, right. you know, they're, they're, they're aligning with beliefs of folks who have traditionally been their foes, you know, the, the people on the other side, when it comes to black lives matters, when it comes to all kinds of other things. And I feel like that should tell you something right there. Um, and it just sort of baffles me that this is, this is where we are that, you know, folks like LeBron James, who is vaccinated, won't use his platform to say, Hey guys, you know, this is for the greater good. Um, you know, so many are saying, well, it's kind of a personal choice and I get the history behind it, but I also say now folks who have power platforms, voices should be using them. Um, for the greater good, for their fellow players, for the referees, for the people attending their games, whoever it might be, and the folks who are listening to them as well. Right. I, I uh, we should say that some certain retired players, notably in the in NBA, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Sir Charles Barkley, have really come forward very forcefully and say they just have no time for these uh, athletes who won't get vaccinated. I, I think there is sort of an interesting dynamic here too, which is that like, why do we care? Well, a lot of us care because you know we want the Red Sox to win their games and they win fewer of their games because so many of their players aren't vaccinated. They keep having these COVID outbreaks uh, in, in the clubhouse. Um, whereas I, I think the athletes also, and, and I mean, I dug up a whole bunch of them. Uh, it's not just basketball players, and it's uh, not entirely uh, athletes of color, too, ranging from J.D. Martinez of the Red Sox to Sam Darnold, the new quarterback of the Panthers, formerly with the Jets, uh, Novak Djokovic, the number one men's tennis player in the world, Anthony Rizzo, formerly of the Cubs, now of the Yankees. They're all kind of saying, no, I'm not getting vaccinated. Not yet. I'll decide. And I do feel like the, for these people, their body is their capital. You know, their body and what they can make their bodies do that nobody else can do uh, is sort of how it's been their destiny. It's been their fortune. And, and I think they're also very much in the mindset of, I know my body. I know what my body can do. Uh, and you're not going to tell me what my body can do. And I can sort of understand how they might fall into that trap of applying that to an actual useful medical therapy that would contribute to the public health if they would uh, simply, uh, you know, let down their <laughs> let down their defenses and 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 get vaccinated. But um, it's a problem uh, in all the ways that our panelists have said. Okay, so we got to take a quick break, and we will come back with some recommendations. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and a six form farm. I wish I was like six foot nine so I could get with Leoshi because she don't know me, but yo, she's really fine. You know, I see her all the time everywhere I go and even in my dreams. I can scheme a way to make her mine because I know she's living fat. Her boyfriend's tall and he plays ball. So how am I going to be. 
And we are back. It is time for me to say thank you to Kat Pastor, our technical producer, uh, who is here every day in the studio with me and making this show uh, happen in all the ways that it needs to happen. And also to the almost always producer of The Nose, Jonathan McPants. He's the producer of The Nose today. Um, so now it is time for our panelists and I uh, to make some recommendations. Uh, Bill Usman, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, sometimes I really go back and forth about exactly what it is that I'm going to endorse. I had absolutely no question this week. My endorsement is the new Spike Lee documentary. Uh, it's got a little bit of an awkward title. It's called NYC Epicenters 9-11 to 2021 and a half. That's the title of it. Uh, it's on HBO. It's eight hours long, divided up into four segments, four two-hour segments. And within each one, there's an hour-long chapter. It's a, I believe, brilliant examination of the first two decades of the 21st century, from 9-11 to where we are now. And he just interweaves so much into it in terms of the the politics, the culture, the pandemic. Um, It's got fantastic use of music. There's even some humor even in it, even though the topics it's dealing with are so tragic and horrible. And, uh, you know, I've written about Spike Lee. I don't think it's hyperbole to say this might be the best thing that he's ever done. It's it's that that might be a little hyperbolic, but not that much. It's that good. Wow. Well, that's quite a recommendation. All right. Thank you so much, Bill Usman, uh, recommending the new Spike Lee documentary. Uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, how about you? So I have two and I'll make them quick. One is a squid game on Netflix, which is probably, you know, my equivalent to the doom scrolling at night, but has been incredibly entertaining. <laughs> Didn't really want to watch it at first, but have been really, really enjoying it. It is a, it's from South Korea. So there is English dubbed over it, which sometimes the voices can be somewhat questionable, very much like money heist, but um, really entertaining so far. And then my other is actually a children's book um, called Playing at the Border by Joanna Ho. It's the story of back in, I want to say, 2019, when Yo-Yo Ma went to the U.S.-Mexico border and played as sort of his his stance about, you know, building bridges, not walls. And it's just a really beautiful children's book sort of illustrating that point in time with a really lovely message. Um, uh, just to go back to Squid Game, because my, as of today, 32-year-old son and I uh, did watch the first episode of it. I mean, we should sort of say that it's, I, I, I'm very intrigued by it. It's kind of like, I don't know, the Hunger Games, except <laughs> for a Korean gambling addict. Uh, yeah, for Korean somewhat kind of degenerates that you wind up sympathizing with some of them. Um, it is, it's, it is kind of Hunger Gamesy, but without innocent children being sent to the realm. But it, it is interesting and it kind of catches you. So I hope you keep watching it. Yeah, the the guy who plays the lead is very. I mean, his face is just so expressive, and and yes. and, and he. I mean, he really. You know, he emotes a lot anyway. Uh, so, okay, so um, I was trying to decide what else to endorse besides the way I just endorsed going to sleep. Uh, but um, so Clint Eastwood in his movies, I mean, he's, you know, a very, very musical guy. He writes music. Uh, he has been singing uh, on film since at least Paint Your Wagon. I, I don't know whether it's earlier than that or not. He's, uh, you know, a sort of straight up jazz aficionado. And he also kind of, you know, he works a lot of music in 
into his movies for various reasons. And obviously, if he's doing a movie like Bird, then it's, you know, going to be all music. So in this movie, he ends the movie with um, a, a song, I believe it's called Sabor a Mi. Uh, interestingly, so it's a, obviously a Mexican song. Uh, interestingly, the version that he's chosen is from a 1965 album uh, uh, pairing up Edie Gourmet with Trio Los Panchos. So, um, and it's actually really good. And, you know, Edie Gourmet, like a lot of kind of cornball singers of the 1960s, uh, Doris Day in particular, is a really good singer, uh, as was Doris Day. Uh, and so the version is very nice. It's like a very Clint Eastwood thing to do, though, to pick that in particular thing to end this sort of very Mexico-centric uh, movie. And But Trio Los Panchos is fascinating. I really sort of got interested in them. So they've been around since like about 1944. Uh, and they've had, a, it's like the Kingston Trio. They've had sort of people kind of rotate in and out. Uh, and they do kind of specialize in popularizing without completely defiling uh, folk songs uh, and turning them more into kind of pop uh, standards. They've been, uh, there was the, the Mexican film industry itself used them. Uh, on screen in many, many movies uh, for many, many years. Uh, you hear them every once in a while, and they're often almost kind of semi-ironically used. Uh, they, uh, uh, I think their version of Besame Mucho is used in Juno, uh, and one of their songs is used in Napoleon Dynamite, and there's like almost nothing that can ever be in Napoleon Dynamite that isn't really somewhat ironic and kind of <laughs> self-mocking. So, um, But they're, they're really kind of terrific, uh, and they're worth spending. I, I sort of you know, started to geek. Maybe I, maybe I should have done this instead of falling asleep, but actually I, after I got up this morning, uh, I geeked out on a Trio Los Panchos a little bit and listened to more of their songs. Uh, and they, they really do play that kind of wonderful style of, of Mexican kind of folk jazz guitar, uh, and, and you hear it in this song at the end. So, um, so yeah, my recommendations this week are, uh, are all musical. Uh, Trio Los Panchos, uh, listen to a little bit and listen to the Edie Gourmet st- stuff. It's actually really, really good. Uh, and then uh, when you're falling asleep tonight, uh, if you happen to be in Massachusetts, you can legally uh, ingest a THC gummy and then listen to the Pakistani singing of uh, Aruj Aftab and you will float gently off to sleep. I hope we didn't put you to sleep today. I don't think we did. Thanks very much to Bill Usman and Tracy Wu Fastenberg and thanks to Jonathan McPants and Kat Pastor. Past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking. Talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.